You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. There are several moments where John tells us a story, he tells us a perspective, he tells us about a moment that John had a unique perspective on in the life of Jesus. Now there are several records of Jesus' life in Scripture. We have four Gospels, four life stories of Jesus, each told from a different perspective. But John's is the one that's most up close to Jesus. If when the service ended, we walked out to our cars and you were standing here in the asphalt parking lot and I had made my way across the street to the gravel parking lot and there, were, uh, there was a family on the playground and there was an accident that took place at the intersection. All three of those individuals might be witnesses to the accident, but all three would have a different perspective on what happened. We would see it from a different angle. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of like those three different perspectives, those three different angles, watching the life of Jesus. But someone who might have an even closer, upfront, personal understanding of what happened would be someone who was riding shotgun in the car that was in the accident. Because while you and I might see that somebody ran the stop sign or that somebody was speeding, we could see what was happening outside the car, the person inside the car could tell you that the driver was looking at his phone, that he was sending a text message or playing Angry Birds or something like that while driving. He has that up-close, personal perspective. And what we're entering into is we're entering in John chapter 13, we're entering into the final week of Jesus' life, and what we have is we have an account from John who was riding shotgun for this whole week. He was right there with Jesus, seeing all of these things that happened. And what John tells us about this evening, that John 13, this chapter records, is different. It has a a different perspective on that night. Not that it conflicts with anybody else's record, but it's an up-close and personal perspective. Whereas someone riding shotgun could tell us what the focus of the driver was in the car, John can tell us, and he does tell us here, where the heart of Jesus was in these moments. What was Jesus' focus? What was his mindset here? So let's look at John 13 together. We'll read the first three verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father... Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. Before we even get into the events that John's going to tell us all about in the next several verses, John tells us some really important facts about what Jesus knew, his mindset, his heart in this moment. First of all, he tells us that Jesus knows his hour has come. He says, Jesus, knowing that his hour to depart from this world to the Father had come. And we know that that is the case because in John chapter 12, Jesus has said, the hour of my glorification through the cross has come. And so Jesus knows that these are his final moments with the disciples. And John wants us to know that because if you knew that this was your final week, if you knew that you were going to die come Friday, you would live this week differently. You'd probably use those vacation days. Probably wouldn't go into work this week. Your week would be different. 
And everything that Jesus does from this point forward, he knows that it's his final moments. He knows that it's his final hour. And he makes decisions about the things that he will say with the disciples, say to the disciples, and do with the disciples based on that truth. John also wants us to see that these final moments, Jesus knowing that these are his final moments, that he loves those that the Father has given to him. He says here, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them, what? Unto the end. He loved them until the end. You and I have probably seen some very, very moving um, demonstrations of love and very, very powerful demonstrations of love in that a spouse cares for their loved one in the final stage of their life, when they're unable to care for themselves, when they're in those final moments and they look after this person that they've committed themselves to for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. And Jesus loves the disciples up to the very end. He shows them compassion up until the final moment. And depending on the wording here, it's possible that John's making a little bit of a play on words that Jesus is not only loving them until the end of his life, but Jesus is loving them with the very end of who he is. He's loving them with the very bottom drop of his heart. He's being poured out completely for the disciples. And we say things like, I love you with all of my heart. I love you with all that I am. And Jesus is loving the disciples with every bit that he has. He's laying it all out for them. Knowing those that the Father had placed in his hands, he loved them until the end. And then verse 2 tells us that there's something else that Jesus knows. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus knows that Judas will betray him. Now sometimes we can stumble over verse 2 because we see where it says the devil had placed it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And we think, wow, it wasn't Judas's fault. Satan put it in his heart. It was Satan's fault. But we have to remember that what the Scripture is telling us that it put it in his heart. He was tempting him. And just as Satan may tempt us to do wrong, and there are evil influences that tempt us to do wrong, we are responsible for our actions. We are the ones that do these things that are wrong. Judas wasn't forced to do these things. Rather, Satan tempted him, and he accepted the invitation. Just as Satan placed before Eve an apple in the garden and Satan places before you and I opportunities and we take advantage of them, we are guilty for our sin. And so Satan is tempting Judas to do the wrong thing here. And Judas, his heart is not for Jesus. Rather, his heart is for himself. And we've seen that in the previous chapter when Mary is anointing Jesus' feet and Judas has questions, not because he really worries about the money, not because he's conservative, but John tells us because he's the treasurer. And he wants the money put into his own hands. And so the posture of Judas's heart, the position of his life is already such that he is leading away from Jesus and seeking to serve himself and do what will benefit him. And in that, Satan provides him with a temptation, an opportunity to betray Jesus. Jesus would later say to the disciples here in this chapter, I'm telling you these things so that once it happens, you might believe. Jesus is not saying, I'm making these things happen, but rather, I know that they're going to happen, and I'm telling you now so that when they happen, you could believe that I I knew what I was talking about. And God knows what will happen, but that doesn't mean that he causes what will happen. There's a difference. I I can know that something bad is about to happen, that doesn't mean that I've caused it. So Jesus knows what is going to happen. 
The fourth fact about Jesus' mindset and the information that he has on hand in this moment that John gives us is that Jesus was incredibly clear on his identity. Verse 3 says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had placed all things in his hand, that he was God and that he was headed to be with God, Jesus is about to serve the disciples in this amazing way. He's about to do this radical gesture of love for them. And it's not because he's unaware of who he is. You see, sometimes you and I, we do things for other people because we feel like we ought to. We, we do things for other people because we feel like, well, I'm, you know, this is what I deserve. We feel compelled by guilt to do it. And what happens here is Jesus serves not because he feels like I'm a lowly servant and I, I, should, I should be serving other people. Jesus knows that he is very God of very God and serves anyway. Jesus doesn't think less of himself in this moment, and that's the reason that he serves. Jesus knows who he is. He knows his place in heaven. He knows his place in majesty, and he bows low to serve. He's not brought low by his mindset. He's not made to think that he's less than who he really is. He knows who he is and then acts in service in spite of who he is. And you and I don't have to come to this place where we are loaded down with laws and rules and we feel like, well, this is what I have to do. We can recognize that Christ has granted us freedom and forgiveness and know that we have a standing and we have a place with him as a son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God, and yet serve anyway. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus performs this humble act of love and service that is reserved typically in their culture for for the servant to do. Jesus does it as the Son of God, knowing full well that he is full worthy of all praise. That's what we sang earlier. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you, Jesus, because your name is the name above every other name. You are the only one who could save You're holy. There is none like you. There's none beside you. God, open up my eyes and wonder that I could see who you are. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in love to those around me. Jesus doesn't act out of uncertainty on his rightful place. He knows that he's the king of glory and acts with humility. This humility is not born of Jesus thinking less of himself but rather setting aside his glory to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. I've never watched the show Undercover Boss or Undercover CEO, but I know basically the premise is the person who owns the company, who's the leader of the company, they go into the skies and they work with the entry-level employee, the person down on the front lines, cleaning the bathrooms, whatever it is, and they're down there with a person who is the lowest man on the totem pole, serving alongside of them, seeing what it's like. That's what Jesus has done here. Jesus has has not been fired from his position. He's not been removed from his position. Rather, still holding this rightful place as the Son of God, he has come down to be one of us. He has put on the uniform of an entry-level employee. He's come down to be among us. And not only that, he has performed acts of service for us in these moments. And in that moment, he is not lost in who he is. He's not forgotten that he is the Son of God. He knows what the Father has placed in his hands and serves anyway. So look with me at verse 4. He riseth from supper, 
and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. He's saying, Peter, you don't understand this now, but it's, it's going to mean something to you soon. And Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus, you're not washing my feet. This, I, I'm not letting you do this. This is the work of servants. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In that case, Jesus washed me all over. And Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. This is an act of service. When people would come in to the house, their feet would be dirty from walking in sandals on the dirty and dusty roads, and so there would be a place where they could wash their feet so they didn't track in all of the dirt, the mud, and more into the home. People of high class and high stature, high position in society, they would have a servant who would do this job. Middle class people would wash their own feet, and servants would wash the feet of high class people. But it came to a point because this is something that high-class people had servants do for them. Middle-class people began to view this as the job of a servant. And if you're middle-class and you're aspiring to be high-class, you feel like somebody ought to wash my feet. I'm just as deserving as the next person. And so in moments where there was no one who had been provided and you're kind of jockeying for status, which we know the disciples were constantly doing, they were constantly arguing who among them was the greatest, who among them was the most important, who was going to sit at the right hand of Jesus, this would have been a moment, I'm not washing my feet, somebody should wash my feet for me. And so Jesus takes the basin and the towel. And notice that, that John gives us all of these details, that Jesus takes the towel and he ties it around his waist, and then he takes a basin and he fills it with water. John could have just said Jesus washed the disciples' feet, but he's giving us all of these steps of preparation that Jesus went through. He's giving us all of the details that John watched, because this is a moment that later on, when John would look back to it, it would be crystallized in his memory. Because though John doesn't know it, it's one of his final meals with Jesus. And if you've ever lost somebody that you care about, you think back to the last conversation that you had with them, and it holds this new significance and meaning that in the moment you didn't realize. And when Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected, when all the things that unfold after happen, John looks back at this moment and he's thinking, that was my last meal with Jesus before he died. And he knew what was going to happen. And he knew that Judas was about to betray him. And he took a towel and a basin, and he filled it with water, and he washed all of our feet. And it holds this central place in John's memory, this moment, this thing that took place. He, 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 he sees it so clearly. That Jesus, knowing his place at the right hand of the Father, knowing his place as the Son of God, kneels down and washes the dirty feet of his disciples. One of those pairs of feet belonging to his betrayer. 
And this would transform John's life. This way that Jesus showed them how much he loved them in these final moments. It would begin to characterize everything about John. And he's known as the apostle of love because so many of his letters center around the idea and the point and the focus of loving one another. Why? Because it was in this moment that he saw love in its purest form. What Jesus had done for them. Now, in that moment, in that context, in that culture, there was a need. And so Jesus meets that need. There was not a need this this morning for your feet to be washed. Hopefully you took care of that last night or this morning when you showered. But there are other needs. There's a need that you have right now. And that differs from person to person. And the need that you, you currently have is, is different from the need that you had a month ago. And as God works in your life and he begins to meet these needs and reshape your heart, those needs will change. But there is one need that is absolutely universal. That every one of us needs in all times and in all places, no matter our culture. And Jesus points to this need in this conversation with Peter. Because Peter says, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus, I respect you too much for that. And Jesus says to Peter, what does he say to him? He says, unless I cleanse you, you have no part with me, Peter. Jesus is showing the disciples that he is willing to serve them because he loves them. But he also uses this as a moment to point out to them that without a cleansing, they have no part with him. If you're not cleansed, you have no part with Jesus. Please, I beg you, hear me on this point. For the sake of your soul, lock in with me here. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. He's saying, Jesus, this is beneath you. I I don't want you to do this. But Jesus says, if I don't cleanse you, Peter, you have no part with me. What's he saying? We have to be cleansed by Jesus if we're going to have part with God. And that idea of part is having the inheritance of God, being a part of the family, being made a son or a daughter of the family, having a part in the inheritance when the father leaves all that he has to the children. How do we have a part? Jesus cleanses us. And without that cleansing, we're not a part of the family. Because what the Bible makes very clear is that the sin that is in our hearts, the sin that taints our lives, it cannot come in contact with the righteousness of God. They do not mix. They're like oil and water. They do not come together. That sin must be removed. There must be a cleansing. Or we are not in the family of God. There must be a cleansing or we have no part with Him. Jesus came to cleanse us from our sin. And we only have a part with Him if that cleansing takes place. Peter says, well, if that's the case, Jesus, if I only have a part with you, if you you cleanse me, cleanse my feet, my, my hands, my head, from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, Jesus, cleanse me. Because if I only have a part with you, if I have been cleansed, don't leave anything out. And what Peter shows us here is an attitude that is opposite from what most of us have. Because Peter doesn't say, well, what's the least that we can do and I still have a part with you, Jesus? What's the least that I can do and I still skate by? Rather, Peter says, let's do everything possible to make sure I'm cleansed so that I can have a part with you. And our response to Jesus should not be, what's the least that I can do so that I have a part with him? What's the least that I can do so I can have a part in the family of God? It should be gotten to whatever you need to. Do whatever you need to. 
It should not be, hey, what are the three rules that I really have to keep? What are the six laws that I really have to obey? What are the seven steps I need to take and then I'm good? What is it that I have to do? No, it should be, Jesus, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Jesus came to cleanse us from our sin. That is the only way that we have a part with God. And our response should be, do your best work, Jesus. Redeem every broken piece of me. Don't hold back. Wash my feet and my head and my hands. And we should not come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what are the parts of my life that I have to surrender to you? What are the parts of me that I have to to surrender to cleansing? Our attitude should be, Jesus, you, you take every part of me. You cleanse every bit of my life. You come in and wreck every aspect of my life. You come and make it like it needs to be. Not just my feet, but my head and my hands also. And what Jesus says to him, and if you grew up in church, and you know a good bit about the Bible, you hear this, okay? What Jesus says to him is that if you have been cleansed, you're cleansed. Peter, you don't have to worry. If you're with me, if I've cleansed you, you're cleansed. If you've been forgiven, you're forgiven. And you're all clean, but not all of you. Why does he say that? Because Judas is in the crowd. And Judas has not given his heart to Jesus. His heart is about to betray Jesus. And so even though Jesus has washed his feet, he is not clean. Even though Judas has had the ritual cleaning of his feet by the very hands of the incarnate God, even though Jesus Christ himself washed the dirt off of Judas's feet, because his heart wasn't with Jesus, he was not clean. And I beg you, friend, do not put your trust or your hope in any ceremony any church attendance, any baptism, even if Jesus was the preacher himself this morning, even if Jesus himself baptized you, doesn't matter if your heart is not for Jesus. Don't put your trust in anything else. Some of you are putting your your hope in the fact that you went through the baptistry years ago. Well, I was baptized when I was a kid. So I, I know I'm a Christian. Some of you are are putting your hope in the fact that you've been attending church for a long time. Some of you are putting your hope in the fact that you obey a lot more rules than anybody else. None of that matters. Because Judas did all of that. And yet he was far from Jesus. Some of you are putting your hope in the church attendance and your familiarity with the trivia of the Bible. But your heart is far from Jesus. Because you've gotten to a place where you feel like you've met the minimum requirements for heaven and you're just coasting. You're not seeking after Jesus. You haven't decided to follow Him. I had lunch with the the pastors of, of Chandler here this past week and and we were talking about our congregations. And you know what, what is the common refrain of, of, of just about every pastor that I, I have an opportunity to chat with about? That there is this fear that there are people that sit in our pews every Sunday. And because they attend church, they feel like they're good to go. That's not it, friend. 
You can hear every sermon I ever preach all of my life, and that matters little. You can preach sermons all of your life, and that matters none if you're not in Jesus. You can be baptized into church every Sunday, have a position within the church, and not submit your heart to Jesus. You know how I know that? Because Judas is right there. He's in the inner circle. He's among the twelve. What's, what's, what's mind-boggling to me is that, that Jesus is even telling the disciples in this moment, one of you is going to betray me. He's even telling them, one of you is not clean. One of you is turning on me. And the disciples can't see it. Look, look at verse 29. Jesus has told Judas at this point, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. Judas is going out to betray him, to, to give Jesus up to the authorities. And Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. And the disciples, they don't understand what's happening. Verse 29. And some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus said to them, buy those things we have need against the feast or that he should give something to the poor. They think Jesus has just sent Judas on an errand to do some good. They can't see that right there in the midst, right there among them, is someone who's about to betray Jesus. It is not truly a follower of Christ, even though he sat with all of them at all of these meals. They, they, never Judas, not Judas. I once heard a preacher say that, in hev- that heaven will be full of surprises. And many of those surprises will be those who are not there and those who are. Please do not put your confidence in some practice or ritual. You know, you know what's really interesting about John chapter 13? That this is the evening that Jesus has the last supper with the disciples, and he institutes the practice of communion where we take the wafer or cracker or unleavened bread and it's to represent Jesus' body, and we drink the cup and it's to represent Jesus' blood, something that the church has practiced for thousands of years to remember Jesus, and John doesn't mention it. John makes no mention of communion. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do. Paul would talk about it in his letters, but John makes no mention of communion. And it may be that when John was writing his letter, people had put so much faith and trust in communion that, hey, man, I'm good because I took the unleavened bread and I drank the cup that they give you at church, so I'm golden. And for John, that's, that's meaningless. That's nothing. For John to leave out communion from his letter, that, you know what John Sees, John sees that practices and rituals are good so long as they point us to Jesus, but in the moment that they replace Jesus, they are our doom. That the moment we start to trust in the practice or the ritual instead of Jesus, they do not lead us to Jesus, but they hinder us from believing in Jesus. John doesn't tell us about communion. But he tells us about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then he gives us the words of Jesus that follow. So look with me at verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them. So this is right after Jesus has finished washing their feet. He says these words. Know you what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you, what's that next word? An example that you should do as I have done unto you. I've showed you the way. I've given you an example that you should follow. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. I'm about to send you out to tell the nations, you're not more important than me. You should be willing to serve others. And then verse 17. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus says, I'm your master, and I have done these things for you, and I am sending you, and you are not exempt from doing these things for others. But if you do them, you'll be happy. If you do these things, you'll be happy. It was hot yesterday. I'm, I'm pretty sure that every year, I'm like, this is the hottest Chandler day on record. This is the hottest Chandler day every year. And then the next year, it's just hotter. And so yesterday, we, we were in the parade, and we're passing out popsicles, which people, every time I saw someone get a popsicle, oh, yes, great, because it was hot. And our volunteers walking the whole course of this parade route, handing out these popsicles, sweating. You know what I saw when we got up to the community center and the parade was done? I didn't see a bunch of people complaining. I saw a bunch of people saying, man, that was fun. Smiles on their face. There are times that our musicians have to get here so early to be prepared to lead you in singing. And I'll be printing off some notes, or I'll be finalizing something, I'll be scratching something in my sermon notes, and I hear them practicing. You know what I hear? I hear people who enjoy being together. There are kids, some of your kids, that are in kids' ministry that are a handful. You know it. You know I'm not lying. And our kids' ministry volunteers love them. Why? Because when we serve one another, we do these things, we're happy. That's what Jesus said. If you will serve one another, happy are you if you do them. Look down at verse 31. Jesus is continuing his remarks to the disciples. At this point, Judas has left. He sent Judas out, and now he is continuing to speak to them. Therefore, when he was gone out, Judas has gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The plan is set in motion now. Jesus is going to be arrested. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, he's saying, this is, I'm about to go, and you're not going to be able to find me. You're not going to be able to be with me. So hear this. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Why? Because it was a need, and he loved them. And it wasn't beneath him. And he says to the disciples, he says, As I've loved you, you ought to love one another. 
It was a need. Jesus met the need. It was not below Jesus to meet that need. And Jesus, motivated by love, meets that need. Jesus says, as I have done this for you, you should do it for one another. I don't, I don't think you need to wash people's feet. That's not a need that we have today. Today it looks a little different. Today it might look like listening to a person who needs someone to talk to. Today it might look like loving on some babies in the nursery and changing their dirty diapers. Today it looks like running the soundboard so that people in the overflow can hear what is being said, and people who aren't here today can watch it or listen to it online through the week. Today looks like visiting someone in a nursing home that feels alone. Today looks like sending a note or a text message or making a phone call or giving an invite. Today it looks like not making a comment on Facebook. It looks like inviting someone to sit around a bonfire with you or sit at your kitchen table and eat with you. There's a need, and we're not above filling it. And if we love one another as Jesus loved us, we'll meet that need. Part of me wants to assign things to you to do, but that wouldn't be love. That'd be obligation. But I think if your heart is shaped like Jesus, if your heart is wrecked by the love of Jesus, if you've experienced how Jesus loves you, that we will love one another as Jesus loved us. And, and did you catch what Jesus said to the disciples? I mean, did verse 35 just, just knock you for a loop? Because what Jesus says in verse 35 is that if you love one another, this is how the world will know you're my followers. This is how the world will know you're my disciples. Not by the rules that you keep. Not by the platform you stand on. Not by the things that you do. Not by the labels that you have, but the love that you have for one another. I grew up in church. I grew up around a lot of rules. I had a lot of rules that I kept because I felt that if I kept those rules, people would see that there's something different in me. And there was this turning point in my life, this moment, similar to what John experienced when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that I read this book entitled Prodigal God. It was all about how God loved me in the midst of my sin, and that sin looked like righteousness to me. It was my self-righteousness that I felt like I deserved love because I kept all of these rules. And that book wrecked me, and it took away my pride. And when my heart broke and that, that pride ran out, the love of God ran in. How will they know? Not by the rules we keep, the laws we abide by, the labels we have. They will know by the love that we have for one another. That's how they'll know. And how does that love come into our lives when we experience the love he has for us? Love one another as I have loved you. If you've experienced the love of Jesus, Him meeting the need of your heart, the need of your life, the cleansing that you desperately need. I need that it was there, and it wasn't beneath him to meet it. And so he came to meet that need for us. We experience that love. We'll love others as Christ loved us.
Let's bow our heads for a word.